As we continue our study through the book of Philippians, we uh, come this morning to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. So I invite you to turn there with me, if you would, in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. You may be seated. When uh, we were on vacation a few weeks ago, we were driving on a country road in northern Wisconsin heading to a restaurant, and, and we saw these nasty storm clouds on the horizon. And the, the storm clouds were right in the direction of where we were going. And so as we went on driving, we found that we were driving basically right into the storm. And so we uh, got to the point where we, we pulled the car over and we stopped and we just sat there kind of deciding what to do. Do we, you know, keep on going uh, forward to the restaurant, which was right into the heart of the storm, or do we turn around and, and go the opposite direction, uh, trying to find another, another restaurant? And my pride was telling me to, to keep going on. And Lori was telling me to, to turn around. And after 19 years of marriage, I guess I'm finally learning to listen to my wife instead of listen to my pride. And so we turned around and, and went the other way. When you see storm clouds on the horizon like we did that night, it, it creates the sense of something ominous. That was what we both felt in the car as we stopped. Was like, this, this does not look right. This does not look good. The, you know, the, the green and the dark and the lightning and the, and the wind and the rain. There's something ominous in the storms. The storm clouds carry with them the potential for damage and destruction. They might bring devastating winds or, or lightning. They might produce torrential rain or hail. You, you just never know what, what might come with a storm. And I am uh, not alone in believing that there are storm clouds on the horizon for the church. You can just feel it in the air. There, there is hostility and opposition in the air. In fact, I think that we are already experiencing the, the first gusts of wind and the first drops of rain. And we don't know exactly what the storm might bring. And so the question that I want to explore with you this morning is, is how should we respond when the storms come? 
Because I think that they are coming, and some version of a storm for sure is going to come in the life of discipleship. So how are we as Christians to process the reality of opposition and hardship? Well, we find some insight into this matter in our text this morning. You see, Paul wrote this letter in the midst of a storm, and not a, a literal storm, but a, a figurative storm of severe opposition and hardship. Three times in these verses, Paul refers to the fact that he is in chains. So what that means is that he was being held as a prisoner in Rome because of his work proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And he was, at that time, under house arrest in Rome, imprisoned in Rome. He was physically, literally physically chained to a guard at all times. And these, these chains of Paul that he writes about are really just the culmination of, of five years of, of intense opposition leading up to this moment. Five years of, of struggle and hardship and persecution every step of the way. It all began uh, back at the temple in Jerusalem when he was falsely accused of, of bringing a Gentile into the temple courts. He was falsely accused by people who hated him and wanted to, wanted to see his ministry stop. And that led to a riot, which resulted in Paul bloody and beaten in the courtyard. And the Roman authorities heard about the riot, and they arrested Paul. And so he was held in prison for two years in Caesarea. And it was two years of, of red tape and politics, and two years of unfair trials and frustration, two years of, of, of just uh, endless paperwork and endless uh, uh, conversations and getting nowhere. And after two years of getting nowhere, Paul finally appealed to appear before Caesar himself in Rome. And so he was put on a ship with other prisoners headed for Rome. But along the way, a violent storm came up that drove the ship across the Adriatic Sea in the exact opposite direction from which their destination was. And they ended up going, it got so bad that they had to go without food and provisions. And eventually the ship crashed into some rocks and it was broken into pieces near the island of Malta. So shipwrecked out at sea. And Paul and the other shipmates were safely ashore on Malta. Uh, Paul was bitten by a venomous viper. He survived the snake bite, but they were stranded on Malta for three months before they could set sail again for Rome. And when he finally made it to Rome after all of that, he was put under house arrest and chained to a Roman guard. And again, the, the, the train of bureaucracy was agonizingly slow, for at the time of his writing, Paul has been in chains in Rome for another two years, just waiting for his trial before Caesar. So, so these are the, the circumstances under which Paul wrote his letter. He's been falsely accused, beaten, uh, tried, storm-tossed, shipwrecked, snake-bitten, famished, and imprisoned. He's been ridiculed, mocked, and slandered. He's been abused by both religious authorities and state authorities. He's encountered resistance and hardship every step of the way. And now he was in chains waiting for his trial before the Roman emperor Nero, who was a man who was steeped in wickedness and had a burning hatred of Christians. And by the way, this, is, this, this, uh, this whole five years leading up to his chains in Rome is really just the, the most recent of his afflictions. Uh, uh, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, was written about five or six years before this, and, and he lists in that letter to the, the Corinthians a whole another litany of afflictions, even more severe than these that he endured. 
And as we consider these afflictions and hardships of Paul, we realize that most of us will never endure all that Paul endured. That most of us will, will probably never find ourselves in chains for Christ. But as long as we live as followers of Jesus in the world, we, we will endure opposition. Uh, some of us are already encountering that and we're seeing it more and more and and that's just the way it's going to be. We will be ridiculed and mocked and slandered. Uh, Jesus said, everyone will hate you because of me. And if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And so the, the path of discipleship will take us through hardship. And at times, that hardship will, will overflow into acts of, of hostility and persecution. And so again, the, the question before us is, well, well how should we respond how are we as Christians to process the, the reality of hardship and, os, and opposition? Well, when we look at, at Paul's situation, it seems like, like the natural response would be paralyzing discouragement and agonizing despair. Because just look at, look at the, the, the outward, the external, the objective sort of facts for a moment. It seems like kingdom work is being hindered. It seems like the devil is winning and the church is losing. For here is God's chosen servant, a champion of the gospel. And where is he? Well, he's sidelined for five years by false accusations and mistrials and government bureaucracy and government affliction and imprisonment. And so we would expect Paul to write to the Philippians with a tone of, of crushing disappointment. That's not what we find, is it, in our text? And in fact, throughout the whole letter of Philippians, that's not what we find. We find a, a rather surprising response from Paul in these verses. We, we find a spirit of optimism and joy. And in fact, we hear Paul say at the very end of his letter, because of this, I rejoice. Well, how in the world is it that such hardship and opposition can, can lead to rejoicing? On what basis does Paul find joy in the midst of the storm? You see, that's the big question, isn't it? If we can find the basis for Paul's rejoicing, then maybe on that same basis, we too can rejoice when the storms of opposition come. And Paul tells us the basis of his rejoicing. It is quite simply the advancing of the gospel. He says in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And again in verse 16, he says, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now that's an interesting statement. And, and the verb put uh, has the, the, the connotations, the implications of, of divine providence. So what Paul is saying is that God has placed me here. I didn't just end up here sort of, you know, by, by evil powers and, and, and it's a lamentable thing. God has placed me here. And God has placed me here for this purpose, for the defense of the gospel. And so do you see what this means? It, it means that the enemy is not winning. It means that the storms of opposition and hardship are, are not just, just sort of tragic evils to be endured. It means that God is, is doing something. That God is doing something beautiful and, and purposeful and kingdom building even through the storms. And what he is doing specifically is advancing the gospel. And you see, for Paul, well, the, the advancing of the gospel is everything, isn't it? 
I mean, if we know anything about Paul, we know that, that the heartbeat of, of, Paul's, of Paul's life and his ministry was, was the advancing of the gospel. I mean, it was Paul who said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do all of this, why? For the sake of the gospel. That I may share in his blessings. Woe to me, he says, if I do not preach the gospel. The God, you see, for, for Paul, the gospel is everything. To have Christ proclaimed and made known among the nations, to see the good news of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ spread across the world, that was Paul's driving passion. That was his central concern. That was, that was his heartbeat that drove everything he did. And now Paul says to the Philippians that these chains of mine, these storms of opposition that I'm enduring, they're serving to advance the gospel. They're, they're doing the very thing that I most want to do. And so instead of paralyzing discouragement or crushing disappointment or agonizing despair, Paul can authentically rejoice in the chains that he wears and the opposition he endures. But we might wonder at this point how it is that the gospel is advanced through opposition and hardship. Well, Paul mentions three specific means uh, in our text, and these are not exhaustive means by which the gospel is advanced. They're, they're within the context of this particular text in, the, in that environment of opposition and hardship. And so uh, the first is through personal witness. So Paul says in verse 13, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, this is really significant, I think. You see, the, the, the palace guard was a group of 9,000 highly trained, specialized soldiers. They were really, uh, you know, the, and it, to put it succinctly, they were the emperor's bodyguards. They were, they were the, the best and the brightest. They were the, the movers and the shakers of the future. If you wanted to have any influence in the Roman Empire, you could not pick a better group to start with than the imperial guard. And now some of these guards are physically chained to Paul during his imprisonment. They would rotate through on, on six-hour shifts. So, so there'd be a bunch of different guards uh, coming through, and each one chained to Paul for six hours, and the next one would come for, for his six-hour shift, and on and on it went. And so how did they come to know that Paul was in chains for Christ? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It was through Paul's own testimony or witness. I mean, think about this for a moment. If somebody is chained to you for six hours, well, they're a pretty captive audience, aren't they? And so Paul would use that, you know, that being chained to the guards as an opportunity to tell the guards the good news of Jesus. And maybe at times if he would have visitors, the guards would overhear Paul talking to his visitors and he'd hear their, their prayers and he'd hear Paul sharing the gospel. And so as these guards are, are chained to Paul, guard after guard, they're hearing the gospel and telling other guards about this oddball prisoner who had found this peculiar joy in the midst of his chains, this joy that comes from knowing this one that's called the Christ. And over time, some of these guards came to believe. 
They received the good news of Jesus, and we know that they did. We know that some of them did come to Christ because Paul ends his letter to the Philippians by sending greetings from fellow believers, and among them he includes, uh, what he, what, in his words, those who belong to Caesar's household. Well, how did anybody in Caesar's household come to Christ? It was through the guards. It was through the imperial guard, and it was through their coming to Christ by Paul's personal witness. And so the gospel was advanced in the most unlikely of places, the imperial guard, a place that Paul never would have had access to if he hadn't been in prison, because let's just be honest, I mean, the, the imperial guard is not exactly the kind of people that are going to go on their own to one of Paul's evangelistic rallies. And so as one missionary said, God often sends us to dark places, sometimes via evil men, that we may bring his light where it otherwise might not go. Let me say that one more time. God often sends us to dark places, sometimes via evil men, that we may bring his light where it otherwise might not go. In times of opposition and hardship, the gospel is advanced through personal witness. The second means by which the gospel is advanced is through inspiration by example. Uh, Paul says in verse 14, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Well, well somehow Paul's chains have inspired others. I mean, it seems a little bit counterintuitive, but, but many of the believers saw what Paul endured for the gospel, and instead of sort of, you know, making them shrink back in fear, they're emboldened in their witness. They're stimulated to greater confidence. They, they begin preaching the gospel with renewed fervor and fearlessness. They, they see, hey, if Paul can endure that, well, what, I wonder what I can do. Maybe God will equip and embolden me to to do more, and that's exactly what is happening. And, and, and I, I understand how that works. Uh, Lori and I have been reading uh, a book about Mary Slessor, who was a, a, a Scottish missionary to Africa in the early, 19, early, early 20th century. And so we've been reading all about all that she endured for the sake of the gospel, how she gave up her, her life of comfort to share the gospel with unreached peoples in Africa. How she canoed through crocodile-infested waters and how she hiked through, through snake-infested forests. And how she endured life-threatening heat and, and swarms of mosquitoes and how she boldly risked her life saving children from rituals of sacrifice and confronting tribal chiefs with the truths of God's word. And so she was, throughout her time, threatened by cannibals, mistreated by opponents, and almost died numerous times of malaria and a hundred other diseases. And when we read her story, we can't help but be inspired by her example. I mean, it spurs us on. It kind of makes us feel like pathetic Christians, to be honest. But it also makes us want to go out with greater boldness and fearlessness in sharing the gospel. The gospel is advanced through inspiration by example. The third means by which the gospel is advanced is really the most surprising of all, and, and that is the gospel is advanced through the, the preaching of those even with impure motives. 
Listen to what Paul says in verses 15 to 17. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. You see, there were some preachers in Rome who were preaching the true gospel message, but they were doing so with impure motives. They were, they were probably jealous of Paul and his success in ministries. So they were kind of like uh, Scotty Pippen to Michael Jordan back in the 90s, right? You know, tired of playing second fiddle and tired of living in his shadow. And they saw Paul's imprisonment as opportunity to pull ahead and to step into the spotlight and to take some of the acclaim for themselves. They're hoping to surpass Paul in, in influence and acclaim, hoping to sort of swoop in and rack up so many converts that Paul would kind of fade from view and maybe in so doing it would pour a little salt in Paul's wounds and maybe his chains would feel all the heavier. But listen to what Paul says about these competitive, selfishly driven preachers. He just doesn't play. He's not going to play their games. He says in verse 18, but what does it matter? Yeah, okay, they're, they're full of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. They got bad motives, but what does it matter? He says the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. You see, the, the power of the gospel is not dependent on the motives of the one proclaiming the message. We know from Galatians that Paul could not tolerate a false gospel being preached. I mean, he was very strong and very crystal clear that he will not tolerate a false gospel. There's no question about that. But we see here in Philippians that, that he can tolerate bad preachers preaching the true gospel. The gospel is advanced even through preachers with impure motives. So where does this leave us as followers of Christ? As we anticipate the storm clouds that are looming on the horizon, where, where does it leave us? What should our response be as Christians? Well, if our if our primary concern as Christians is comfort and security, then our response will be one of discouragement and despair. But if our primary concern is the advancing of the gospel, then our response should be one of unshakable boldness and joy. Because what we see in this text is that God advances the gospel through the storms. That the gospel prevails through hardship and opposition. That nothing can stop it. Nothing is going to thwart it. Nothing is going to stand in its way. It is like a train that's going to just plow over everything that comes in its way. And the church stands against the wind and the waves. And the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ rolls on no matter what forces and enemies and obstacles may stand against it. See, this is the only thing that could move Paul to rejoice in his chains. Now, here I am, five years of hardship, five years of struggle, five years of all, all this stuff, and look what, look what God is doing. He's advancing the gospel, the very thing that is burning in my heart to do. That's the only thing that can move Paul to rejoice in his chains, and this is the only thing that can move us to rejoice in times of opposition and hardship. You see, we, we don't 
in spite of what many of us think, we, we don't have to change our circumstances to be effective in our gospel witness. You know, so many of us spend so much time sort of trying to change the things around us, change our circumstances, change our situation, change the, the political landscape of our nation, thinking that that's the way to be an effective witness. Well, Paul says in this text that we can be an effective witness without any of that. We don't have to alter our circumstances. We don't have to alter the political climate of our nation in order for the kingdom of God to come. God's message through this text is to stop worrying about the circumstances and get on with the gospel. Because the gospel will prevail no matter what. Jean Edward Weiss has said one of the greatest paradoxes in Christian history is that the church is most pure in times of cultural hostility. When things are easy and good, the church is weakest. When the church encounters hardship, persecution, and suffering, then the faith of Christians burns most intensely. But you see, in order for this to be proved true, and it is true, but in order for us as Christians to, 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 to play it out, to live it out, we have to be authentically gospel-centered. If we're not, then, then, then this won't play out, will it? We have to be authentically gospel-centered. As, as Don Carson has said, we have to have the advancing of the gospel at the center of our aspirations. And what a wonderful way to live, by the way, to have that be the center of your aspirations because then we're going to see successes all everywhere we go. We have to love the good news of Jesus more than any earthly comfort or convenience. We have to desire the kingdom of God more than the kingdom of man. We have to be pruned and purified, which, by the way, is exactly what I think God is doing in the church right now. We have to have our heart and hearts cultivated because we have grown complacent and numb and too easily satisfied by the crumbs of the world that we've stopped craving the true bread from heaven. And too many of us have become like the third soil hears in Jesus' parable of the soils. Remember the, the third soil hears those are the it's the soil that was infested with, with thorns. And Jesus says that we who are like the third soul hears, we, we hear the word, but as we go on our way, we're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. And so we need to pray for hearts of good soil, hearts that, as Jesus says, hear the word, retain it, and then by persevering, produce a crop. It is then that when the winds of opposition and hardship blow, we will endure with rejoicing when we are authentically gospel-centered with hearts that crave what Paul craved to see the advancing of the gospel, and then we will see it at every turn. And with Paul, we'll be able to authentically rejoice. Fred Craddock once said that only by the Holy Spirit can the church experience that miraculous shift of attitude from assuming that wherever the Lord is, there is no suffering, to believing that wherever there is suffering, there the Lord is? May God grant us that miraculous shift of attitude. 
May we not shrink back in fear from the, from the storm clouds on the horizon. May we go on with renewed boldness and confidence proclaiming the gospel without fear. May we train our voices for rejoicing for the storm is coming, but the gospel will prevail. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord God, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and response this morning, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would work within us a renewed and an emboldened passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. A boldness, a fearlessness that will stand against the wind and the rains and the storms against the opposition and the hostility that will come that has already in some ways come our way. Oh, Lord, work within us a renewed fearlessness, gospel-centeredness, and work within us, O oh Lord, so that the advancing of the gospel is the center of our aspirations. Lord, hear our silent prayers of surrender and invitation this morning. Lord Jesus, as your followers in this world, you call us to be about the business of advancing your kingdom and sharing the good news of the salvation that you bring. Oh Lord, give us a boldness. Give us a fearlessness. And give us, O oh Lord, a renewed devotion and centrality of concern for the advancing of your gospel. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for the many ways in which we have allowed other things to distract us from this central purpose of ours, this driving ambition. May you fan it into flame once again. For you tell us, Lord Jesus, that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And you tell us that all authority, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Oh, Lord, give us that boldness that comes not from anything within ourselves, but from your promises and from the truths of your kingdom and from belonging to a God who is a mighty fortress and who gives us such security that no powers of hell can prevail against us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.